Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. What I'm going to do today is something a little bit off the path. I know we've been on the, the footsteps of Messiah path for some time now, and, and we're still on that path. We still have lots of good things to say about the footsteps of Messiah, and we're not even close to the end, because I don't think that we can even say we're at the end until he's back. And so certainly we're awaiting his return better sooner than later. Is that right? So. What I'd like to do today, again, a little bit off the path that we've been on, but I think on the path that we've been on, because I realized something last weekend at the retreat, and then kind of thinking about, as I enrolled a couple of new students in the weekly Zoom classes, that sometimes as new students come in, new students of the word come in, they are, it's kind of like a one-room schoolhouse. I don't know if you remember that, if you read about it in Little House on the Prairie, But back in the good old days, they would have a one-room schoolhouse where it didn't matter whether you were first grade or 12th grade, you were all lumped into one big classroom. And the beauty of that is that you had the advantage of maybe the older helping with the younger. You know, as, as long as I guess they got along, that would be okay. And that's good because sometimes you don't really learn something that well until you teach it. And so that's a great way to reinforce the learning. But we run into the same problem sometimes as we're learning Torah together, especially as we're maybe remediating our Torah background. We find ourselves doing that. Maybe if we were brought up in church, we were heavy on the New Testament side and pretty light on the Torah side. And so we find ourselves trying to remediate those gaps and in the process of remediation sometimes, those of us who have been studying that way for a while, we're making these fast connections to the New Testament scriptures because we've gone back and we've built the foundation in the Torah and the prophets and the writings. And as newer people come in, they don't always have that same foundation in the Torah, the prophets and the writings. And it never hurts to go back and review the basics And that's what I wanted to do today. I wanted to review the basics of the red one. And I even did the newsletter. I actually took a section out of a Becky book that I wrote called Truth, Tradition, or Tear to show how, you know, you can take a a Torah principle and grow from the seed of that Torah principle. And by the time you arrive at the book of Revelation, you might be seeing things like a scarlet beast. You might be seeing very specific exhortations giving to, for instance, the the assembly at Sardis, uh, which means red ones. And that's not a compliment. Not everybody has that foundation. So today I thought I'd do a, go back and I would just do a, a little chapter out of Truth, Tradition, or Tear, which is called the Red Shadow. And it's showing how this idea of the red one has been around since the Torah, that it is, it's going to appear in the prophets and it's going to appear in the writings. And definitely as we get into the New Testament scriptures, we go on quite a bit of a, a prophetic journey with the red one. And maybe when you were reading about the scarlet beast in Revelation, you didn't connect him with the red one. 
maybe you didn't connect him with Esau and how he earned his name and so forth. So let's go back and let's just do that that little bit of foundation. And in the future, sometimes I will teach probably what we would say is more prophetic insights into the scripture dependent upon the Torah. And if you have that gap in learning there, or if it's been a while since you reviewed it, this is a good time to review uh, because so many things are based on this eternal struggle between Esau and Jacob. We can see that right now going on in the world. And as I'm teaching, sometimes I don't realize that people don't have that particular foundation. Uh, they might be only casually acquainted with it, or maybe they haven't done workbook two yet. So they haven't had that lined out for them. I think workbook two takes it through in a, a really simple way. But it's it's based really out of this Torah portion, even though I want to go all the way back to the beginning, to the bare sheep, to the very beginning Torah portion. One of the premises comes up in this week's Torah portion, which is toldot, which is the the generations of Toldot. And it's found in Genesis uh, chapter 25. It starts with verse 19. I'm just going to read the background. And then we might flip back again to the very beginning, to the sixth day of creation, and see how this pattern is helping us to interpret the sixth day of creation. And if we can understand the sixth day of creation, if we can understand Esau in this Torah portion as the red one, then when you hear me teaching on Revelation, it's going to make a whole lot of sense when I keep referring to the nefesh or to the soul, which is a bundle of appetites. It's comprised of appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. And you've heard me say that a thousand times, if you've listened to me a thousand times. But it, it keeps coming up because it is such a foundation to the conflicts, not just in scripture, but in humankind itself, right? So let's let's just do a remedial class on that today to make sure everybody is understanding what I say when I talk about this ancient conflict between the soul and the spirit of a human being. Because remember, the spirit came from Elohim, but the soul was formed by him, just like the body was formed by him. It was knit together. And so often we'll find that the soul and the body are pitted against the spirit of a man because the spirit functions on it is written, whereas the soul functions based on, I think I feel I want. And of course, the body is going to go along with it. And so our challenge as believers and as disciples is to discipline our souls with our spirit, to discipline our souls, to listen to the spirit which will guide us based on it is written, not I think I feel I want. Why do I keep saying that? Let's go back to the store portion and it'll explain it. So this is told out Genesis 25, 19. It says, this is the story of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took to wife Rivka, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, sister of Levan the Aramean. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord responded to his plea, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. But the children struggled in her womb. The children struggled in her womb. And she said, if so, why do I exist? And there's so many interesting translations of that question that she asks. And one of them I read was, if all is well, why am I like this? And, and that's the question I think we all have. 
whether you have a womb or not, there's those times in your life when you say, if all is well, then why am I like this? She went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord answered her, two nations are in your womb. Two separate peoples shall issue from your body. One people shall be mightier than the other and the older shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first one emerged red, a dome, like a hairy mantle all over. So they named him Esau. Then his brother emerged, holding on to the heel of Esau. So they named him Yaakov. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the outdoors. Literally, he's a man of the field. But Jacob, Yaakov, was a mild man who stayed in camp. Isaac favored Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rivka favored Jacob. All right. And then if we were to keep reading the story, it tells the story of the red stew. We've already had the introduction here of Esau, who came out red and hairy all over. So he's named Esau. And then it goes on, as the boys are older, we get another introduction of information here that has to do with the color red. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, famished. And Esau said to Yaakov, give me some of that red stuff to gulp down, for I'm famished, which is why he was named Edom. Yaakov said, first, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, I am at the point of death. So if what use is my birthright to me? But Yaakov said, swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Yaakov. Yaakov then gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank and he rose and went away. Thus did Esau spurn the birthright. Okay, that one uh, transaction right there tells us really everything we need to know about the soul, about the nefesh. It functions based on appetites, emotions, desires, and even intellect. There is a certain degree of intellect that Esav is even exercising. It's not just that he's tired and he's hungry. We can see that in the bundle of appetites. We can see it in the emotion. He's impatient, but we also see it in his intellect. We can see him rationalizing because it says, Esav said, I am at the point of death. So what use is my birthright to me? Now, we can read that in hindsight, and we know that his thinking was wrong-headed. And we often do that. We might think we're making an intellectual choice, but it's a wrong-headed intellectual choice. Just because we used our brain to arrive at the conclusion doesn't mean it's the right conclusion. And so if they're in camp, Asa is surrounded by food. I mean, there were hundreds of people in Abraham's camp, remember? Hundreds of people. And there was no famine. At this point, there's no scarcity of food. They've got, I'm sure, I don't know if they have chickens, but we know they have, you know, sheep, they have goats, they have cattle, but it's the smell of the food cooking that attracts Esau. And I'm sure he was hungry coming in from the field, but could he not have gone to his mother's tent and picked up some pita bread and some hummus and, you know, some cucumbers or something. But no, it was that stew that caught that hot red stew that caught his attention. So his rationalizing that if I don't eat, I'm going to die has to be deeper 
it's it's deeper than there's no other food within traveling distance. I'm going to die if I don't eat this stew right here. He's not going to die. If he doesn't eat that stew right there, there's food everywhere. He wants that stew. You know, and sometimes we get that way. We get cravings. Um, and it doesn't help if we walk by the restaurant and we smell that, which we are particularly craving. But the idea of exchanging your birthright for a bowl of hot stew, rather than, you know, controlling that appetite for five minutes more and going and retrieving food from somewhere else, that's the wrongheaded thinking. So it says he despised his birthright. It was something very expensive that he sold for a pot of lentils. And to this day, that's a that's a saying in Israel. Um, something expensive sold for a pot of lentils. It's when you exchange something that's very valuable and what you're getting back is something very cheap. It wasn't worth what you paid for it. Uh, but right here, it's associated again with the color red. There's a heat associated with the color red. There's an impatience associated with the color red as it concerns Esau, who's now going to be called Edom. And if you've ever been to Edom in Israel, as you start driving down the, the Elat Highway toward Paran, you'll start to you'll see the road sign there for Paran, and then you'll see the mountains of Seir, and they do, they're like blood red. They're exactly the way it's it's described here. So even your intellect is part of the soul, it's part of the nefesh. And this is why Yeshua came. He came to save our souls because we think wrong. We desire the wrong things. Sometimes our emotions are wrong. You say, well, how can emotion be wrong? You can't control that. Yeah, you can. You actually can. It takes a lot more discipline to control an emotion, but it can be done. But it, it's usually done through practice. And that's the life of a disciple, practice. Right here, we see a man who is so impatient. He is not willing to exercise any self-discipline. And if we were to keep reading in the Torah portion, we would find out that Asaph, he goes on and he marries. It says in uh, chapter 26, verse 34, when Esav was 40 years old, he took to wife uh, Yehudit, Judith, daughter of Be'eri, the Hittite, and Basimat, daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they were a source of bitterness to Isaac and Rebekah. He married idol worship. And here's the problem. We can see later that Isaac and Rebekah instruct Jacob how to go find a wife. And he submits to his parents. He says, okay, I will go and I will go find a wife according to your instructions. When Abraham was looking for a wife for Isaac, he gave specific instructions to his servant. But what Esau does is something that's unheard of at the time. He just goes out and marries two women without parental guidance, without parental permission. There again, his appetites are out of control. And it's only later when he realizes how unhappy he's made them that he goes and he he takes a daughter of Ishmael. But with Esau, it's, you know, ready, fire, aim. He just jumps. Whatever he thinks, whatever he feels, whatever he desires, whatever he has the appetite for, that's what he acquires. Jacob, on the other hand, is playing for the long game. And that's most of the time, that's evidence of spiritual, the holy spiritual 
moving in a person's life because there is a patience required. So that is going to be kind of the foundation for understanding what is in Genesis. Let's go back to the very beginning. Let's go back to Genesis 1. I'm the right verse here. Okay. After the fifth day of creation, in verse 24, Genesis 1, 24, God said, let the earth bring forth every kind of living creature, cattle, creeping things, and wild beasts of every kind. And it was so. God made wild beasts of every kind and cattle of every kind and all kinds of creepy things on the earth. And God saw that this was good. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. They shall rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, the whole earth, and all the creeping things that creep on the earth. And God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fertile and increase. Fill the earth and master it and rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the living things that creep on the earth. Right. So there's a, a process here. Since we're talking about the difference between Esau and Yaakov, or Esau and Jacob, we see that there is a firstborn, which is Esau, and there's a secondborn, which is Yaakov, and which, you know, the, the one who comes after. Like, remember, he was grasping at Esau's heel. There's a reason he was grasping at Esau's heel. Remember, the heel is the part that comes after. Now, see, human beings, we have tails, but we don't have tails like animals, all right? We don't have little things stringing along behind us. Really, what's considered the hindmost part of your body is the bottommost part of your body, which is the heel. It's the lowest and the hindmost part of a human being. And the heel came to represent the nefesh, the soul. What is Jacob born doing? Basically, he's pointing at Esau's heel and saying, look at this man. Where is he going to be vulnerable? He's going to be vulnerable at the level of his heel. He's going to be vulnerable at the lowest part of who he is as a human being. What's the lowest level of who you are as a human being? That which you have in common with a wild beast. That which you have in common with an animal. Animals also have souls, just like human beings. They have a different spirit. There is a different breath that goes into them. But we are made in the image of Elohim. He formed us after his image. And part of that is he breathes his spirit into us to become a speaking soul, to speak his words after him. That sets us apart from the animal kingdom. And in this case, Yaakov is saying, look, in Esau, he's born red and hairy all over like a beast. He's literally hairy like a beast. And his soul is going to rule his life, his appetites, his emotions, his desires, and his intellect. Beasts also have intellect. They're very cunning, just like the serpent was the most cunning beast of the field. And with that intellect, they can actually take over. 
If you if you give them the rulership, they can take over, even with animal cunning. Appetites, that's what drives uh, a wild beast. Appetites, whether it's food, uh, whether it's territory, or whether it's sexual appetites, they're driven. They're also, the emotions play into it. They're, and often that's part of the predatory nature or the the fleeing nature of the animal. If it's a full, you know, a type of creature that's lower on the food chain, that emotion of fear is what's going to keep it alive. Right. So they're they're really all about the desire just to stay alive, just to live in the moment. Animals live in the moment. One of the, the creatures that's really set apart, as an example, is the ant. They're a little bit different. They store up their food and they don't just store it up for a few days. They'll store it, you know, for a year in advance. Even though an ant's only going to live six months, it's storing food that will last much longer than the lifetime of the ant. And so we're told to observe the ant and learn a lesson from the ant. Most beasts don't hoard food to that extent. They truly, it goes back to the mindset of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. In the animal kingdom, it's very much like that. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we probably will die. <laughs> they don't have a long lifespan in the wild. They're, they're always going up or dropping somewhere on the, the food chain. Humans are different. So there's something about what we read in Toldot about the birth and the behavior of Esau and Jacob that is explaining what we read about on the fourth day of creation, or the, excuse me, the sixth day of creation. In fact, the number six is also a big insight. As we get to the book of Revelation, we keep reading about the mark of the beast is 666. Why six? It takes us back to the sixth day of creation. When both the man and the beast were created, we have to decide, are we going to conform to the image of the beast? like Esau, or are we going to conform to the image of Elohim, like Jacob? Will we be controlled and disciplined of the spirit, like Jacob? Or will we be controlled by our animal appetites, like Esau? And it's even specific. We know Esau was the firstborn and Jacob was the secondborn. It says the older will serve the younger. Well, as we look at our sixth day of creation, we get that idea too. It says... First of all, that every kind of living creature was brought forth on that sixth day. The beasts were the firstborn of the sixth day. And look how many times it says this here. Uh, let the earth bring forth every kind of living creature, cattle, creepy things, and wild beasts of every kind. He made wild beasts of every kind and cattle of every kind and all kinds of creepy things of the earth after their kind after their kind after their kind after their kind then god said see there's a switch right there same day it's still the sixth day of creation elohim says let us make man in our image after our likeness they are not to conform to the image of the wild beast that i just got through making Instead, the human beings are to conform to the image of Elohim. This is the right way. They, they should reproduce after their kind, not after the kind of the beast. And they shall rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, the whole earth, and all the creepy things 
that creep on the earth. So with this plan of the sixth day, the firstborn of the creation, which is the wild beast, would serve the younger of the creation. The man was created second in the image of Elohim, not after the kind of the beast. And so in this perfect world, the wild beast, the older, would serve the younger, the human being. And then we see that paradigm as we're looking at Esau and Jacob. So we would call these the proto-prophecies of the man and the beast. This helps us understand really all the conflicts between day six of creation and revelation, where you've got those who are taking the mark of the beast because they conform to the image of the beast. But then you have those who are sealed of Adonai. They are sealed with the seal of his Holy Spirit. What has set them apart? The Spirit. They are disciples of his Spirit. They live their lives based on it is written, not I think I feel I want. And so that's a choice. We get to choose whether we're going to take on the nature of the older or the younger. Right. So let's take a look. Um, at the newsletter. And again, I I brought up in the newsletter that when you start reading about the monster in the book of Revelation, the scarlet beast, this monster is one that you already know about. Yes, it's a fearsome creature, but it's actually um, a conglomerate. And it's referred to as the red one. Why is he referred to as the red one? Um, Because it, it don't. Remember, um, the earth is Adama. Adam is red. Esau is Edom, the red one. He's more earthy. And in Paul's uh, epistles, he compares the earthy man to the spiritual man. He compares the Esau to the Jacob. And in a sense, we're, we're both Esau and Jacob. There's two twins inside of us. It's like he said, there's two nations in your womb. Well, the problem is not that we have a soul. That's not a problem at all, because without it, we call that being dead. If your soul is separated from your body and your spirit, if those three things come apart, that's dead. You don't want to be dead. What you want to do is you want to discipline the soul. You want the Jacob inside of you to discipline the Esau. You want the spirit of Elohim inside of you to discipline the soul of the beast. The only thing that you you have in common with the beast is the base nature. That's why the heel came to represent the soul. It represents the lowest part of who you are as a human being, whereas the highest part of who you are as a human being is the head, which is associated with the spirit. So at some point in history, um, Jews came to refer to Esau as the red one, because that's the nickname given to him in the Bible, Edom. And Interestingly, it's during the season of Hanukkah that the prayers refer to him specifically as the red one, as if some great battle is going on between those who are conforming to the image of Elohim and those who are conforming to the image of the beast. And so there's specific prayers in the Siddur during the season of Hanukkah, during the, you know, the eight day celebration of the not just the cleansing of the temple but the rededication of the temple and then the offering of that first offering on the 25th of Kislev which is when 
the offering was offered on the abomination that causes desolation, right? It was the, the rectification of the, the Greek desecration. And, you know, that's why it's troubling sometimes when you've got people still having arguments over whether we should observe Hanukkah uh, or whether it's some demonic holiday, when actually there's prophecy about Hanukkah in scripture. And so I wrote a book called The Seven Shepherds, Hanukkah and Prophecy. So we can go back and we can look at those prophecies and understand exactly what, when they ask Yeshua, as he was walking in the temple at the Feast of Dedication, is there insight to his answer? And there is, if you understand the Jewish way of thinking of Esau, the red one, Rome, came to be identified as the first century red one. The red Rome was the red one. And so there's a specific place in their prophetic expectation about the seven shepherds and the eighth prince. If we go back again to the prophets and they associate particular uh, conflict with the red one during this time of Hanukkah. And of course, historically, that's been the case. If we look at the Greeks, especially, and the desecration that went on. But that scarlet beast, as we see it in the book of Revelation, is really not a new one. It's a conglomerate. It's a composite. It began with the kingdom of Babylon, which is the golden head of the beast. It extended into the silver upper torso of Persia Medea, and then into that bronze belly and thighs of Greece. And then those systems of Greece, the organizations that were generated by Greece, whether you're talking about politics, medicine, theater, entertainment, games, you name the system, education, government, Rome took those systems, and so the iron legs of Rome, they expanded, perfected those systems, and now we see them all over the earth in the clay feet and clay and iron feet spread all over the earth. So the red one now is everywhere. It's in organized systems of all kinds. It doesn't have to be government. It doesn't have to be religion. It can be within any organization that is attempting to organize people and make them of one mind, right? So rather than kind of going through the debate of whether we should even observe Hanukkah, the question is, why is the, the why are the prophecies of scripture concerning the time of Hanukkah, why are they important? Well, again, these are the, these are the seed words that are going to grow. And as these seed words grow, it helps us to interpret the parts of scripture that come later. And so that ancient battle between Esau and Jacob, that's a seed pattern we need to know. We need to know about the sixth day of creation and how those two patterns coincide. It's an ancient struggle. And so there's sensitive areas of the, the foot, like the heel and the hand, they're symbolic in scripture. Like we say, the foot and specifically the heel represent the soul, the nefesh in Hebrew. And um, the problem with the soul is it can become very hard and calloused, just like the heel. You know, the older you get, if you're not that old yet, just wait around. <laughs> if you have a nice sensitive heel right now, just wait around. As you get older, especially if you spend a lot of time on your feet or working outside or going barefoot or in sandals, you'll find that your heels can become very hard and very calloused. 
Um, but typically the soul itself remains more sensitive. It's the like the concave part of the foot. And again, that's where Jacob is pointing. He's pointing to the heel that this is going to be a place of vulnerability to the seed of the woman. This is where the person is going to be vulnerable to the beast of the field that is supposed to be ruling over. So this serpent beast in the garden wants to, again, become the head. It wants to take over the place of the spirit. Because remember, the head represents the spirit. The serpent recognizes because he's the most cunning beast of the field. Remember, they're not unintelligent. They have an animal, animal intelligence. He wants to become the head. And Adam and Eve relinquish their heads, that spiritual authority, over to the beast of the field. And so the more that we sin like that, the more that we give over ourselves to the beast, the more hardened the heel becomes. And the harder it is to reach that person with the things of the spirit. And we can see that, you know, with Esau, he's 40 years old when he took those two Canaanite women. He wasn't getting better. He was getting worse. He's a predator like an animal. He's a hunter of the field. He's looking for vulnerable prey like a beast. He's looking for game. And how does he seem to sway his father? Because it looks like Isaac's prepared to give Esau the blessing and the birthright. What made it easy for Esau to apparently make his father believe that he should receive? The blessing. Well, it said that Isaac had a taste for the wild game that Esau would bring. It takes us again back. It's like we can't get away from the, the story of the beast and the man, right? And so Isaac, he wants some of that wild game. He's got a taste for it. He's got an appetite. He's got a craving for it. And if Esau will just bring him some of that wild game, then he'll go ahead and give him the blessing. And so Rivka. Again, like Jacob, he was a man of the tents. Rivka, women are associated with the tents. Through her prophetic insight, through the spirit, she says, okay, here, Jacob, here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to dress up like a beast. You're going to have to put on these goat skins so that you will feel hairy like Esau in order to gain the blessing. You've already legitimately bought the birthright, but the blessings go with the birthright. If you don't have the blessings, it's very difficult to maintain the responsibilities of the birthright because they have more responsibilities. Why did Esau think he was about to die? It makes sense. Remember, the soul acts on the right here and the right now. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And that's true. We will die. And so the short-sighted thinking says, why should I live right today? If all these rewards were being talked about. If, if these are being held for us in the heavenlies for eternity, and I can't enjoy it right now, then what's the point? I should do what I want to do. I want my payoff right now. And we've all had that thought probably as teenagers. You know, if you talk to teenagers long enough, they're like, I just want to go out and have a little fun. And then, you know, when I've had a little fun, then I'll straighten up and start doing it right. They've got the eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. We die mindset. It's I want my reward. I want my fun. I want to fulfill my appetite. I want to turn loose of my emotions and let them go where they will roam. I want to fulfill my desires and I want to think my own thoughts. It's the beast. 
that's in control. But see, with the spirit, if you get a child with a strong spirit, a child with a different spirit, they will even discipline those appetites as a young person, like Jacob. And so, no, Esau wasn't about to die. He just knew that the rewards of the birthright would not come until the end of days. And he says, why should I wait that long for the payoff of the birthright? He says, go ahead and it's worth a bowl of soup. You know, Jacob, if you want to put up with all the persecution that's going to go to your descendants because of the birthright, go ahead. You know, take the birthright. I'll take the stew. So many people are like that. People haven't changed. If you want to pay the cost of living a life dedicated to Adonai and keeping his rules and living according to his will and his heart, go ahead. But I'm going to please myself. I'm going to think my own thoughts. I don't want to pursue his thoughts. I just want to go according to my thoughts and my desires. I want to live my sexual life any way I choose to, not the way he says. I want to eat the foods I want to eat, not the things he says are food. I don't want anybody to tell me what emotions I should experience. I don't want to look at the word and say, you know, he wants me to rejoice at Sukkot, but he wants me to be a little more sober on Yom Kippur. He doesn't want me over grieving, grieving past a certain time. Scripture even tells us how to discipline our emotions. I don't want anybody telling me how I should feel. I don't want anybody telling me what to think. I don't want anybody telling me what I should want. And so they're governed by those desires instead of mastering them with the Holy Spirit. And that's where the beast is vulnerable, at the heel. That's where Esau was vulnerable. And that's why he represents the red stuff. Esau is that rowdy soul. He's seeking pleasure. He's seeking achievement. He's a big competitor, by the way. He's a huge competitor. He loves games. And that's where the Rome, which came to be known as the red one, specialized to this day. You can go to Italy and you can see the Colosseum and look at the loss of life, both animal and human. And so when Jacob finally returns, he's married and he's got children now, and he returns to the land to face Asaph. It says the night before he struggles all night with a man that he says has the face of El, the face of God. And Jacob names the place of that wrestling match Peniel, which is like the face of God. And as a result, Jacob was smitten in the thigh socket. And that's actually also, you know, the sole of the foot is the cuff. It's the sensitive part of the foot, whereas the heel is the callous part. Well, the thigh socket that he's touched in is also the cuff, that hollow, that sensitive part. His walk will be more sensitive to the spirit. But before Jacob could face his twin Esau, he had to wrestle the Esau within. And that's something for us to remember. Before we can wrestle with the scarlet beast out there, we've got to wrestle with the scarlet beast in here. How? What, what did Jacob have to wrestle with? Remember, Jacob, he was notorious for relying on his own thoughts, his own plans, kind of conspiring with his mother Rivka in order to obtain the blessing to go with the birthright. So his intellect was the part of him that needed intervention 
he needed to even surrender his intellect, the way that he thought. And there's so many, not just young people, we can't blame the young people, people of all ages. We're seeing them march around angry, full of emotion, full of Esau, full of red stuff. And even their intellect has been undisciplined, completely undisciplined. They're very competitive. But look how it changed Jacob's walk when he gave up his thought process to the Holy Spirit, when he quit trying to do it his way. And he was willing to do it the way that he was being called to walk in it. And that's true. When a disciple walks in the Spirit, you want to do it with the sensitivity of the sole of the foot, not that vulnerability to your red desires and that that hardened heel, because that's the danger. The more you walk in your own thoughts, the more you walk in your own appetites, emotions, and desires, the harder the heel becomes. And the harder it is to change it, the harder it is for it to be sensitive to the spirit. And the more we conform to the image of the beast. You say, well, who would conform to the image of the beast? Who would take the mark of the beast? Well, it's really simple. If you conform to the image of the beast, it means that there is this overriding principle, it is written. This is the will of Elohim that we are to conform to as human beings. And then we in turn rule over the beast kingdom. We in turn rule over even the beast within, the Esau inside, the soul. And then our spirit it is written, begins to teach the soul, this is what food is. These are the thoughts you should think. These are the things you should crave. These are the emotions you should express. And this is what a disciple does, little by little. The disciple allows the Holy Spirit to train the soul. And the more you train the soul, the more you are ruling over the beast kingdom the more you are ruling over the red one. And as long as the red one is strong, the red one will attempt in a very competitive way to rule over the spirit of a human being. That also you can project that onto the world stage. When we look at the systems, the organizations of the beast, what do they want to do? They always are very competitive and they want to rule over. And in this case, they want to rule out it is written. And that's always been the case. I'm thinking a very specific case right now. You know, one of the the big red letter words right now is Zionism. Zionism is like lighting a match with a lot of people. Why would a word like that that's in the Bible? that's based on the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, why would a word like Zionism be so inflammatory? Well, it's inflaming the beast. Because remember, the beast wants to rule over the spirit. The beast wants to rule over the human being. And so these beast systems, they are driven by appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. There is a cunning intellect associated with it. They're not stupid. They're cunning, but they're stupid concerning scripture. They're blind in that area. 
they can never accept that there is an ancient promise given to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that deals very specifically with an assignment to a land with a written covenant, the Torah, and a specific people who join themselves, whether they're walking there through bloodline or whether the the faith and the righteousness of Abraham, their father, they're part of that covenant. Esau can never allow that to happen because he loses his preeminence. And so the, the appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect of these systems is all aimed at squashing anything to do with it is written. And particularly as we go way back in the history, if we as we go back into the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when that specific covenant was delineated, as we go back to the place where Esau and Jacob were born, but then going all the way back to the garden, and then all the way back to the creation of the beast and the man on the same day. There's been this conflict. There's been this competitiveness. And, but here's the problem with Esau. Here's the problem with the wild beast. It doesn't function based on truth. Truth is based on it is written, period. What is written is the will of Elohim. What's under the control of a human being or a beast is the soul, at least until that soul dies. And so in that sense, we can decide whether we will align our appetite or emotion, our desire and intellect with that which is spiritual. It is written. Paul tells us the Torah is spiritual. The word is spiritual. The beast strives against accepting it is written, therefore I think. It is written, therefore I feel. It is written, therefore I want. It wants the thoughts and the desires to rule over the spirit itself. What it doesn't understand in that paradigm where the beast rules over the man, in that paradigm is death. And it has been that way from the beginning. When the beast ruled over the human being, death entered the world. They fell into a realm of death. The beast can't fathom that. It can't compute that. It takes the spirit to compute that the spirit is life, that the will of Elohim is life, that the word of Elohim is life. And only when life rules over the beast will there be life in the soul. So that that vulnerability, we can see it even in righteous people like Isaac, because he had that taste for wild game, and that created an opening. And so we have to be careful. What are the places where we are creating openings for the wild beast where we can make a major mistake? Now, the spirit did not let Isaac make that mistake. He wasn't allowed to make that mistake, but he could have. He became very close to making that mistake. We have to look at our lives. And we have to ask ourselves, is there a thought process in my head that is creating an opening for the beast to deceive me? Is there a desire? Is there an appetite in my life that's creating an opening for the beast to deceive me? If so, I have to discipline that. I have to be a human being and I have to rule over that beast. I have to rule over that wild beast. And that's the thing. It's it goes back to the older has to serve 
the younger. You're not trying to kill the older. You're not trying to kill the beast. You're trying to turn it into a disciplined soul. That's what Yeshua came to do. Yeshua didn't come to just let your soul run wild. Yeshua came so that you would become his disciple in the word and to begin to disciple your soul. Like Yeshua said, whatever I see the Father do, that's what I do. Whatever I hear the Father say, that's what I do. This is what has to happen when you look into the word, which is the Father's will. It's what he says and what he does. And then you do that too. Then you're doing what Yeshua did. You're imitating Yeshua, who is saying, I looked at at the Father, and this is what I am. I am his word. And so we don't want to render our soul out there and make it vulnerable. We don't want to have an appetite for wild game because Esau will be right on target. He will know exactly where that, that opening is. We want to stay sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. I think that's going to help us understand the background. You know, as you hear me speak a little bit about Revelation and talk about the Scarlet Beast and and how the soul enters in, that really is the lesson in a nutshell. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry go to thecreationgospel.com you can find links there for our newsletter books workbooks facebook and our youtube channel